She wore a brown tunic as long as her body, covered in dirt. And if it were not for the red flock of hair that swung away from her head, she could not be recognized as a woman. On her head was a gunmet, usually worn over an egg-shaped helmet, but she had attached it by its nosebud so that its bulk obscured much of her face. Two weeks ago, on a remote northeastern Martian fair, she had picked the winter hat off a carcass of a young soldier about fifteen, amid hundreds of other bodies decomposing in the wet fields. No one complained when she took it. The red-headed woman had one knapsack upon her back and a bedroll under her left side. On her right hip she carried a small sword but covered it under her soiled tunic to keep it from clanging. On her left thigh she secreted a stinging dagger of impressive design used by the officers of wars to poison foes. Except for the knapsack and a few articles of undergarments she wore, the entirety of her costume had been taken from the dead soldiers long grown moldy and undug graves on the battlefields and fair. The sight of death was commonplace. Blood baths lathered the plains, heinous extinction as far as eyes could see. Corpses of plains people unattended, unkempt upon the cold, disinterested ground. Men and women cheated from their lives who fought for their children who had died anyway. What did it matter that they stayed to battle for their few possessions? Stocked from prior raids, the killing machines of well-trained legions readily won campaign after campaign. With victory at each battlefield, they pursued a furious course to the south in conquest of the ensuing villages before word could reach their future victims. As they marched, the heartborn raiders beat their heavy metal shields and chanted monotone tunes. They painted their limbs with clan symbols from fresh human blood and chalked their faces with ashes from the burned remains. Their vulgar shanties sung in a death march rhythm were hymns to their devilish deity. The steel shield sounded with such racket that inhabitants ran at the approaching sound. Some retreated south ahead of the mob to warn the others of the approaching marauders. However, groups of scout lay in wait for such would-be heralds and quickly sectioned their throats. Fewer fled west into misty hollows of the gander forest to conceal themselves under the heaps of early autumnal leaves. As squads broke off from the main columns to pursue the escapees into the grim woods, the larger army continued south, down the coast. Unlike others who ran at the start, the redhead girl remained steadfast in one choice spot, hidden under mounds of decaying leaves, for two straight days. She stayed put even to defecate, though she piled on leaves to cover the odor. She was a hunter, and like successful hunters, she knew the easiest way to get caught was to think one was safe by running. She had often waited the extra hour for her game to falsely believe danger had passed in due time for her arrow to hit the fatal mark. On the first day of her hiding, two sentries had passed her without notice. On the second day, another heartborn sauntered by. 
Thirty minutes later, a second quietly followed him through the underbrush to catch spooked victims in their trap. As the legions moved farther south, she carefully wound her way westward. For four weeks, she met massive battle casualties. Once, a group of starving orphans pressed her for food. Ruin and human desecration poured like a relentless rain. The armies of hardborns were inhuman and acted without regard for their own species. They exterminated men and women over seven years of age. Under seven, the children would starve. Oksana Somalin was an olive-skinned girl of 17 with big green eyes that glared out at the world with an austere purpose and resoluteness. Her cousin, Randall, had nicknamed her the Red while they were children. Outwardly, she was handsomely beautiful, but her core personality suffered from too much restraint. Her gestures, voice, and carriage spoke the same abstemious language as her eyes. She rarely did anything, move her arm or blink, without reason. Her family trained her in the martial art of hunting, in which every action must have its measure and chosen use. Disciplined in body and mind, the acolytes practiced deliberate form, self-possessed like a feline's, as they concentrated on their periphery. Listening was preferable to seeing. Oksana's face, often enrazzed by others as harsh or stringent, reflected the lack of drive to please others, hence she rarely smiled. Certainly, the prize of popularity was foreign to her. A month prior to her great loss, Randall's letter described his plan to travel. When she fled westward to hide in the Gander forests, she calculated the war had probably bypassed Randall, given his fortuitous timing to travel up the barren Tisri Trail. Her impulse to travel flowed from her unconscious emptiness. Thus, her decision to find Randall arose not from a personal desire to act, but a measure of inaction, like seasons turning or a seed growing or a child gestating in the womb. The Red's purpose originated from outside herself, that is, through the loss of her family, her support. Close relations were everything to hunter families. The Sobolins spent each season together trapping, curing meat and fish, tanning skins and making do. Hence her quest for her cousin was not a conscious choice. Each westward step made her desolation more acute, without hope of a promising occasion surrounded by her family. As the war deeply upset her balance, she corrected the imbalance by finding her sole relation. Indeed, her cousin was her only link to a stable future. When she reached the isolated Kind River, safely away from the carnage, her rage boiled. Memories of her dead fueled her ire. She fumed over the mistakes of the past, chiefly the leniency given to the clans after John the Dauphin's decree ended capital punishment. She seethed as she recollected the pivotal day of banishment in which the visitors blackened the criminals' ears with tattoos to show their crime against nature in which they gave each a bag of burly rice and speckled bean seed and ordered the columns of prisoners to the frozen gnome. The red enjoined herself. This time my blade shall fill the bellies of my foe, and only the black ear shall remain.
For an hour, Turan led Randall with his beasts in tow across unmarked paths, starting with what appeared from below to be an inaccessible plateau. From there they wandered over a mosaic of rills and copses bearing no evidence of travel. Randall recorded their path on a piece of suede leather, but Turan mocked his map-making efforts. By the time they arrived at the recluse's lodge, Randall had indirectly learned the existence, but not the location, of the hermit's water source and vegetable patch. He also gleaned that before Turan's isolation, the hermit had lived among people, for Turan could read, write, and converse about historical events and places. The hermit's barren, stone hut, however, bore no clue to its owner's personality. Its furnishings were so sparse they evinced a lie, which justified Randall's original suspicion. Indeed, the home was not anyone's residence and was likely a false domicile. Perhaps, Randall silently mused, it is a shelter in bad weather or a convincing tribute of the hermit's poverty to deter any would-be robbers. Outside, wind-pocked fists of granite surrounded the complacent residence in an accidental arrangement to further disguise the lodge. Inside, the meager light illuminated a singular room with irregular angles. Its sides rose to meet the ceiling like a pair of thin lips, so that no corners existed. Loose rocks and debris cluttered the bounds where ceiling and floor met. However, in the flat middle, the floor was clean, and as the ceiling was high enough, Randall could stand and move about the chamber. Uh, these are truly fine winter squash saved from last season, the hermit offered to divert his guest's scrutiny. I'll fire the hearth and prepare some, the old host expostulated with a demanding sense of urgency. As Turan spoke, Randall detected a slight echo in the far range. Another room, he thought. A cave's entrance, for the inside is larger than the outside, but there's no breeze. The hermit has somewhere blocked this cave, Randall assumed as he peered around. Indeed, the farthest pit appeared darker than the rest. A curtain, no doubt, Randall supposed. As Randall pondered the hidden door, Herpetros again asked if he wanted squash. Randall said yes, for he was quite hungry for something different. Herpedros acted the proper host. He had tied Randall's beasts outside to the lee of a large outcropping, brought them fresh grass, and fetched some water from a nearby dugout spring. At present, he was feeding Randall. Nevertheless, it was senseless to believe the hermit. Although he claimed to possess a garden, his harvest was nowhere to be seen. Furthermore, year-old winter squash, the hermit's only provision, could not long sustain a person. The hermit seasoned the cooked squash concoction with herbs from a pouch, and the two sat on arranged mats to eat. Randall was impressed with the food and had a second helping. During their meal, Randall recounted his arduous journey and the personal riot his decision had caused within his family. Though he was generally distrustful of others, Herpedros attended every word and genuinely enjoyed Randall's company. The qualities in Randall's voice, the tones of his unusual but pleasing glendary accent, the flash of his exuberance, and his warm demeanor raised to mind his familiar, the one to whom he had been so close. Turan ate only a few bites and stood when Randall finished. In a voice that a son might use with his father, the cave dweller confessed, I have lied to you, my respected visitor. Indeed, I see you are from Glendary, 
and know nothing about the mountains, yet your features and your likely lineage are common in these parts. What I found most unanticipated is how your face and qualities mimic my old friend. Even your unexpected gentle charisma matches your look-alike. Turan sought a means to conclude Randall's visit and be rid of him, though he remained interested to learn more of Randall's heredity. But even though I grow fond of you, the hermit allowed, you do get under my skin, traveler. My impatience at your impudence shoots through my peace. Randall had expected a trap or a turn of the table, but not a confession of feelings. Tran feigned his knowledge. Let me explain, please, the hermit returned to his mat. Your endeavor into the bomb is folly, for you know scant nothing about its immense danger. You prattle about the bomb without having weighed facts. You should return to your spot on the trail, and once there, go home for whatever adventure is in store, for without question your family likely needs you in this time of trouble. As Randall chewed his last mouthful, he felt sullied. The squash stuck halfway down his throat. I've lied to you, the hermit dishonestly conceded, for I do not know how to survive in the bomb. Indeed, one cannot live there at all. I'm a lonely hermit, and I only wanted your company, he contrived. As a traveler, you see the lonesomeness of these tracks, the lands breed rough citizenry in whose hands my life is not worth spit, Herpedros falsely confessed. Randall nodded. The past makes few friends and all suspects to my weary old mind. Mine is a harmless deceit. Turan concluded his false apology. With the small barrier of a lie in place, Herpidros invented his false humility to rectify his fraud. Humility is an affable trait, but it ill-suited the character of Turan Herpidros. From Randall's brief time spent with the stranger, he would never describe the hermit as reticent or unpretentious. Indeed, Randall's singular clue to Turan's falseness was the sole word, old. Using it, Turan affected modesty and appeared too submissive. Recognition of one's own humility is the mark of a haughty mind, so the storyteller Togdal had taught. How old are you, Herpidros? asked the youth in his twenties. Tran Herpidros had not anticipated the question, was momentarily disarmed. I I'm older than you. What, what does it matter? Herpidros responded gruffly. Yes, Randall told himself. The hermit is lying. But you are old, I mean. I mean, you're much older than anyone I've ever known. Older than Widow Carthy in Bodash. And she's 109. I saw it for the first time a few moments ago. And, well, there it is again. How old are you? Randall stood up and demanded. What is this boy to me? Herpidros ruminated. What can you possibly care, impertinent youth? The hermit burst out. Now, why are you lying to me? Randall asked. You do know how to live in the bomb, and I insist you keep your word. Tell me. Randall responded with his hand over his short sword. Randall's wrangling enraged Herpidros to no end. Epithets rushed to the tip of his tongue, ready to hurl as javelins, but he understood he had fallen in Randall's trap and lost his foothold in their argument. Turan sat down without answering, and Randall fought back with more silence. Turan's explosive response gave Randall a slight advantage. Turan slowly came around and answered, I am 664 years old. Another lie! 
shouted Randall, who raised his hands in the air and turned to leave. <laughs>